This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Hello and welcome to Heritage Matters, a programme brought to you by the Southern Heritage Trust and sponsored by Ryman Healthcare. I'm Dougal Stevenson. In this programme, Bill Southworth records the history of an Otago Victoria Cross winner. I remember an unusually gifted singer, actor, director. Gregor Campbell tells us about a popular policeman. Judy Southworth uncovers how Harwood got its name. And we discover how a judge was threatened to a duel. Wartime brings out the worst, but also the best in people. This was the case with a peacetime farmer from the Otago Regiment, who, in the First World War, in order to save his comrades from being mowed down, charged and put out of action three German machine-gun nests. This profile of him from Bill Southworth. In Dunedin's Queen Gardens, there's an obscure plaque to a little-known Otago farmer who won the Victoria Cross in France in World War I. He is Sergeant Donald Brown who bravely destroyed three German machine-gun nests. He was killed several days later and was awarded the Victoria Cross posthumously. Donald Brown was born in Dunedin in 1890. He was one of ten children of an Omaru draper, Donald Brown, and his wife, Jessie. They were both migrants from Scotland. Young Brown was educated at South School and then Waitaki Boys High School. After completing his schooling, he took up farming, and in 1913 he was able to purchase a farm at Totara, just south of Omaru. A year after the First World War broke out, Brown sold his farm and volunteered for the New Zealand Expeditionary Force. After training at Trentham Military Camp, he was posted to the Otago Regiment, and within a few months he was posted to France with the rest of his battalion. The Otagos were initially posted to the quieter Armentier section, but then they were transferred to the Somme sector. In September 1916, Brown, now a sergeant, was involved in the Battle of fleurs Cordesette, part of the Battle of the Somme. His battalion was assigned to capture a series of German trenches and soon came under heavy machine-gun fire, which caused many casualties amongst the Otago men. Brown and another soldier, Corporal Jesse Rogers, attacked one machine-gun post killing its crew and capturing the gun. With other men, Brown then attacked a second machine gun and put it out of action. The Kiwi losses during the Battle of the Somme had been horrific. Brown's company started with 180 men. On the opening day, it lost 123 of them. Two weeks later, Brown's battalion was moved back up to the front line to attack a German trench system near Olecourt Abbey as part of the Battle of La Transloyal. On the opening day of the battle, Brown once again attacked a machine gun which was holding up their advance. Moving forward, armed only with a pistol, he attacked the post, killing its crew and capturing its gun. This allowed his fellow troops to advance and clear out the German trenches. While firing at enemy soldiers as they fled, Brown was shot in the head by a German sniper and killed instantly. He was just 26, one of about 16,000 New Zealanders who died in that war. Brown's company commander recommended him for a Distinguished Conduct Medal, 
and his battalion commander wrote a letter to Brown's father telling him that they hoped the medal would be upgraded to a Victoria Cross. Officers of the battalion continued to lobby on his behalf, and finally on the 12th of June 1917 it was awarded. The citation in the London Gazette read as follows. For the most conspicuous bravery and determination in attack, when the company to which he belonged suffered very heavy casualties in officers and men from machine gun fire. At great personal risk, this NCO advanced with a comrade and succeeded in reaching a point within 30 yards of the enemy guns. Four of the gun crew were killed and the gun captured. The advance of the company was continued until it was again held up by machine gun fire. Again, Sergeant Brown and his comrade, with great gallantry, rushed the gun and killed the crew. After this second position had been won, the company came under very heavy shell fire, and the utter contempt for danger and the coolness under fire of this NCO did much to keep up the spirit of his men. On a subsequent occasion in attack, Sergeant Brown showed the most conspicuous gallantry. He attacked single-handed a machine gun, which was holding up the attack, killed the gun crew and captured the gun. And what of Corporal Jesse Rogers, who took two of the machine gun nests alongside Brown? Some soldiers felt he too deserved a Victoria Cross. He made temporary captain and eventually was awarded the Military Cross for actions at Messines. Ten months later, the 30-year-old died of wounds a month after that. The Victoria Cross was presented to Sergeant Brown's father in Omaru by the Governor-General and remains in the possession of the family, although it has been loaned for display at Waitaki Boys High School in the Army Memorial Museum at Waiuru. An oak tree was planted in his memory in Omaru, and another plaque can be found at the Omaru Municipal Chambers. This is Bill Southworth reporting. Three Heritage Matters programmes passed. We played some of the conversation Judy Southworth recorded some time ago with Bernard Esquilant, recalling his time with the Southern Comedy Players. During that conversation, Bernard spoke of Graham Clifford's production of Sailor Beware. Graham Clifford, my ears pricked up. Sweet, sweet memories you gave of me You can't beat and while I won't claim my memories are entire or unrevised, I owe him a lot. Graham Clifford was born in Lancashire, displayed early promise, as they say, and won a scholarship to study at the Royal College of Music. He would sing in many operatic roles. He produced plays and operas and became principal baritone at the Covent Garden Opera Company. Later, Rupert de Oily Cart hired him to perform all the leading Gilbert and Sullivan comedic roles. After the war, Graham Clifford performed with the Royal Opera Company, Covent Garden, subsequently appearing on television and helping create a school of opera. In 1956, he toured Australia and New Zealand with the J.C. Williamson Opera Company, the down-under guardian of de Oily Cart's close-held Gilbert and Sullivan Cannon. They came to Dunedin, and we secondary boys were marched down to His Majesty's to see the Mikado, and the Pirates of Penzance. On those occasions, as I remember, the adolescent audience was surprisingly attentive. The majority were impressed by the opulence and the exotic and engaged by the music, the fun of it all, and the wit. Outstanding amongst the troupe 
was Graham Clifford, a small man effortlessly filling His Majesty's with his powerful voice, clear diction and hugely entertaining timing and pranks. He played Coco marvellously. The Mikado's Lord High Executioner, his own neck on the block, pitiably beseeching the callous and obdurate caricature-faced Katisha with the doomed, sly, desperate whimsy of a lovelorn little tom-tit, sorrowful declaration, tit-willow. As General Stanley, he rattled and snapped his way at the double through W.S. Gilbert's Pirates of Penzance assault course. I am the very model of a modern major general, a patter which has deflated many an amateur and professional for more than a 140 years. Not long after that Australasian tour, Graham Clifford returned to Dunedin, this time to live. I don't know what persuaded him to settle his family here, perhaps meeting local actors and singers, people like Bernard Esquillant and William Menlove. He felt that here was an opportunity, and he had much to contribute. For some years he directed and performed in local repertory, Shakespeare and the Opera Company, and he taught. It was the early 60s. I'd never had a speech lesson, but was determined to get a job in broadcasting. My future wife was one of his pupils, and thinking to guarantee at least some meat on the prospective marital table, she generously gave up some of her lessons so that Graham could teach me to speak proper. His studio was just below street level in Upper Downing Street, under the Excelsior Hotel. I imagined a large room adorned with posters, playbills, photographs too. He was an accomplished photographer. I expected to be surrounded by the memorabilia of a star, but it was rather bare. A desk or table piled high with music, a piano, a rug, and a chair or two. There was little evidence of a shining career. Applying the principles of singing, he was patient and encouraging. He would demonstrate wonderfully, sometimes thunderously, and was hugely entertaining. Gradually, my vowels became vowels. On several occasions, he remarked that some control of the diaphragm was evident, and that the tongue was where it should be, the mouth not too wide, the shoulders not slumped but relaxed. Now, Dougal, he would instruct, speaking softly so as not to rattle the windows, your recitation. Who am I, ladies and gentlemen? I would proclaim. I am Arctaxerxes, king of kings. Breathe, boy, relax. I am a gossamer, I would gasp. A thing of no moment, a thistledown. And so it seemed. I last spoke to Graham Clifford in the cafeteria at Avalon Television Studios in the late 70s. He was still performing. Around us, looking for the right place to sit, swirled some of the fresh, bright talents of the day, vivid and promising. He was subdued and reflective, perhaps a little envious of their youth, if not their prospects. None stopped to say hello to the small, elderly man whose catalogue of wonderful abilities few could hope to ever match. When Sergeant Major John Bevan died in 1892, his funeral cortege was so large that when the leading mourners reached the southern cemetery, others were still exiting the octagon. Gregor Campbell has been looking at the life of this popular policeman. The day before Anzac Day this year, Dunedin Southern Cemetery hosted the rededication of the grave of Sergeant Major John Bevan, late of the Dunedin Police, the 8th Royal Hussars, and a survivor of the charge of the Light Brigade. The Omeru Mail wrote after his death, 
An interesting article appears in the 19th century for May, written by one who took part in the Balaclava Charge, and who tells the following story of the late Sergeant Major Bevan of the Otago Police. A strange thing happened this afternoon. Private John Bevan of the 8th Hussars had been having his wounds dressed. A Russian cavalryman, who was lying on the opposite side of the hut, and who had two desperate sword cuts on the head and three fingers off, had been looking hard at Bevan for some time. At last he got up and crossed the floor and made Bevan understand that it was he who had cut the Russian about so severely. Bevan cheerfully owned to the charge and pointing to the fragment left of his own right ear, gave the Russian to understand that it was he who had played the part of St. Peter. Whereupon the two fraternised and Bevan had to resort to much artifice to escape being kissed by the battered Muscovite. John Bevan was a long way from the Crimea when he dropped into a fatal diabetic coma in May of 1892. He was also a long way from County Cork, back in Ireland, where he was born in 1831. He was a carpenter's apprentice when he joined the 8th Royal Hussars, the King's Own, in 1849. In 1854, he sailed with his regiment to Bulgaria to fight the Russians. From there, he went to the Crimean Peninsula, was present at the Battle of Alma, an infantry battle, and charged in the light brigade attack on the Russian guns at Balaclava. He was taken prisoner after the charge and eventually exchanged for Russian prisoners held by the British. In all, he was wounded 18 times during the war, none of them seriously, though he carried a slit on his ear to the end of his days. When the 8th Hussars were put on a peacetime basis, they reduced their numbers and Bevan was discharged. He declined an offer of £10 from a fellow trooper who wanted to change places with him and went to Victoria, where the gold rush had begun. In Victoria, he joined the Goldfield Police and was recruited for the Otago Armed Constabulary by its organiser and first commander, St John Brannigan, arriving in Dunedin in 1861. One of his duties, as one of Brannigan's troopers in those early years of the rush, included escorting of the gold convoy through central Otago to the bank at Dunedin. Constable Bevan quickly showed his confidence and was promoted to Sergeant Major after a year in Otago. He was awarded £2 from the Police Reward Fund in 1869 for the zeal and perseverance shown with another constable in the detection and arrest of a pair of forgers. He was awarded the Police Long Service Medal in 1887. He was popular with Dunedin citizens from the judges on the bench to those they judged. His fair-mindedness softened even the natural antipathy of the criminal classes to a police officer into a reluctant admiration, reported the Otago Daily Times in eulogising him. Sergeant Major John Bevan's last appearance on duty, after nearly 31 years' service, was at the handing over of the Reverend Thomas Burns Memorial in the Octagon. No one who saw him there would have thought he had little time left on earth. The restoration work was organised by the Otago Military Historical Society, with support from the RSA and members of the public, including many of Sergeant Major Bevan's descendants. I'm Gregor Campbell for Heritage Matters. Just about the first European settlements around Otago Harbour were set up by early whalers. Judy Southworth has been looking at one of them who left his name to a township on the Otago Peninsula. The settlement of Harwood at Portobello is named after one of the early settlers in the area. Octavius Harwood was born in London in 1816, the eighth of ten children. 
hence the unusual name. He went to sea as an apprentice shipman and joined the crew of the city of Edinburgh, which took him to Australia. There he met George Weller and was sent to Otago in 1838 to become clerk at Otakau. Howard supplied provisions to the whaling gangs who visited Otakau for their supplies. The gangs collected two or three weeks' worth of supplies and dropped off the prepared oil and bone. These supplies usually consisted of sugar, tea, grog, a rum and water mix, tobacco, flour and sometimes casks of salted pork or beef. Whaling gear, ropes, tools, casks and cotton canvas clothing were sometimes supplied. Some of this was captured in the sea shanty called the Wellerman, which had millions of hits recently on YouTube. We played it in an earlier programme and thought you might like to hear some of it again. The Wellerman come to bring us sugar and tea and rum One day when the tonguing is done we'll take our leave and go She'd not been two weeks from shore when down on her a right whale bore The captain called all hands and swore he'd take the whale in tow Soon may the Wellerman come to bring us sugar and tea and rum One day when the tonguing is done we'll take our leave Howard also supervised the barrel making there and a team of usually Māori who cleaned whalebone and did other work like building repairs, road repairs and fencing. Sometimes he pickled pork in barrels and purchased potatoes from Māori. He kept a journal which is now an invaluable record of life in the whaling industry around Otakao and the Otago coast. Anna Blackman and Caitlin Duff have transcribed that journal and here are three 1838 extracts from it. May 2nd. Served out provisions to Mr Price's gang of 25 white people and 7 Māori for one week. Slops or clothing to Davis and Hewitt. Brown and O'Donnell. Provisions to Roberts. Received a quantity of whalebone from the Tungas of Middle Fishery. Filled up pork cask with pickle. Gave Māori their tobacco at the middle fishery for two weeks. To Mr Chancellor's Māori, one week's tobacco. Broached one keg and one hogshead of flour. One tiers of pork, about 136 kilograms, and shipped six casks of oil. May 14, five Māori employed repairing shed for Cooper. Employed making out people's bills, issuing provisions, etc. Sent two casks of peas, two casks of flour, aboard the French vessel La Fourne, a French whaling ship that called twice at Otakau that year, in exchange for rope. June 1. Māori employed cleaning bone, rolling provisions to beach for Trio, the local chief, Taiaroa, to take to Pirakanui, but did not go. Scraping boat. Finished making fence for Cooper's house. Received 400 blades of bone from Pirakanui by Tyro and Jackie Wright, the local chief, Karatai. Receipt from Mr Brown for having received 14 cask provisions. Issued 30 pounds of sugar to Dublin Packet. In 1839, he married Detapu, daughter of Chief Pokeni. After her death, he had a daughter by Pokeni's niece, Piro. When the Weller Brothers' whaling enterprise failed in 1841, Howard continued to manage the store and then bought it. In 1848, he married a Scotswoman, Janet Robertson, a passenger on the Philip Lang. 
At this time, he switched to farming, leasing land in Hamden and Otakau. They had ten children, and in 1870 moved to the area that now bears their name, Harwood. They ran cattle and cows, rowing their butter across to Port Chalmers. Octavius died in 1900 at 84, and is buried along with his wife Janet at the Portobello Cemetery. Howard's hand-sewn journal is now held by the Hocken Library. Toitu, the early settlers' museum, display his medical kit, his medical training having been given when he'd been a first mate. Our thanks to Anna Blackman and Caitlin Duff for the journal information. This is Judy Southworth. The practice of challenging another to dueling pistols at dawn seems like 18th century behaviour. But in the case of Dunedin, it almost happened in the middle of the 19th century over a judge's behaviour towards a young lady. Here's Gregor Campbell with that story. Dunedin's first challenge to a duel occurred in 1852 as part of a merry judicial farce reported as follows by the Australian and New Zealand Gazette of the time in a general summary of affairs of the southern colonies. A case has recently occurred in Otago which makes one blush at what is done in the colonies by those to whom the administration of law is committed. A Mr Stephen, who was appointed by Earl Grey, Judge of Otago, charges two respectable residents and a respectable lady with handing about a document injurious to his reputation. During the proceedings, one of the defendants, Mr Mansford, objected to one of the magistrates named Garrick sitting on the bench to decide upon the case because he, Garrick, was Judge Stephen's solicitor and, in that capacity, had threatened the three defendants with an action for libel. Judge Stephen then denied that he was his solicitor in the case but admitted that he was so in another. The bench, nevertheless, overruled Mr Mansford's objection and Garrick was permitted to take his part in the farce. The next act in the said farce was that Mr Mansford summoned the judge for an assault. The complaint being that his honour shook his fist in his face, called him a lying scoundrel, shook his fist in his face a second time, and said he would beat his brains out and break every bone in his body. During the proceedings, Stephen appears to have applied some offensive expressions to Miss Graham, for which Dr Manning promptly sent him a challenge when the judge applied to the magistrates to hold Dr Manning to bail, which was properly enough done. The whole affair appears to have wound up by a private fight between two of the magistrates, a Mr Williams having thrashed Mr McAndrew, the latter gentleman being dissatisfied with the decisions of his brother magistrates, and the former having considered his fists to be the best expounders of Otago law. The attack, says the Otago witness, was a disgraceful one, and William's brother magistrates fined him 30 shillings. That being in Otago, the price of assault and battery when committed by one magistrate upon another. Concerning the challenge, the Otago witness reported, we are informed that Dr Manning has been bound over to keep the peace towards his honour, Mr Justice Stephen, for 12 months in his own recognizance for £200 and two sureties of £100 each. The affair appears to have arisen 
out of the scandalous expressions applied by His Honour to Miss Graham in the late proceedings in the resident magistrate's court. The reason for the judge's expressions, which prompted the threatened duel, is almost lost in the mists of time. It seems that Miss Mary Jane Graham, about to leave the colony, went with her brother to the office of Mr. McGlashan to swear as to the contents of a certain document containing statements which she referred to as a declaration. She and others were, as a result, charged by Judge Stephen with willfully and wickedly conspiring, combining, confederating and agreeing together by handing about a document injurious to his reputation. The contents of the document have not survived as far as I know, but the magistrate of the colony, Mr. A.C. Strode, stated in evidence that the tendency of them would be to injure the reputation of the judge. In the evidence, Judge Stephen was quoted as calling Miss Graham a base ungrateful wretch after all the kindness he had shown her. This seems to be the phrase which precipitated the challenge. All of the above raises one central question. What was the substance of the document written by Mary Jane Graham and taken to Mr. McGlashan? A precy of the situation. Miss Mary Ann Graham is soon to leave the colony of Otago. She appears in the office of Mr. McGlashan, accompanied by her brother and Mr. Mansford, to discuss a certain document or declaration, presumably to be left with or notarised by Mr. McGlashan, in his capacity as Registrar of the Supreme Court. Mr. Stephen somehow gets word of the existence of the document. He suspects, or is informed of its contents, and accosts Miss Graham's friend in Mr. McGlashan's office, with Miss Graham and Mr. McGlashan as witnesses, making threats of violent assault. Mr. Stephen refers to the kindness I have shown her, Miss Graham, whom he describes as a base ungrateful wretch. Mr. Stephen also refers to Miss Graham in unflattering terms when talking to her brother to the effect that, if she were his sister, he would not see her again. What are we to make of all this? Here is a suggestion. Miss Graham was shown kindness by Mr. Stephen, of a kind which, were it known to Mrs. Stephen and the general public, could be as described by Mr. Strode when he said, the tendency of that document was to injure your reputation. For reasons known only to those involved, Miss Graham decided to leave Otago and to leave behind a document or declaration containing the injurious words. The eventual trial for conspiracy regarding Miss Graham's document was never held. When the time for it arrived, Judge Stephen had moved to Wellington and the Supreme Court of Otago, for some strange reason, had been abolished. I am the Honourable Gregor Campbell for Heritage Matters. This programme, which will be repeated on Sunday at 7pm, is kindly sponsored by Ryman Healthcare and brought to you by the Southern Heritage Trust.
Ryman Healthcare prides itself on offering some of the most resident-friendly terms in New Zealand. Ryman Healthcare's Francis Hodgkins and Yvette Williams Retirement Villages in Dunedin offer the very best of retirement living and care. For more information and to discuss your retirement living options, please phone Kate on 455-7936. Ryman Healthcare, supporting Southern Heritage Trust and the Heritage Matters Programme. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.